Well, good evening. It's good to see everybody. Ready to study God's Word? Glad that you're here. Zechariah is a wonderful book and a wonderful and a powerful prophet. And what he says tonight, God says through uh, Zechariah tonight is really good. So glad that you're here to study it with, it with us. A new day for God's people is what we've entitled our study. And we've made it to chapter 7. And we'll finish up chapter 7 tonight and stop there uh, at the end. We'll go through verses 8 through 14 tonight. Let's pray together and we'll get started. Father, thank you for your word tonight, how you speak to our hearts every time we open it up. It's you speaking, it's God's, God, God breathed and God speaking to our hearts every time we read the Bible, study the Bible and, and hear it proclaimed. And so Lord, tonight I just pray that your presence would be with us, those joining us online, those here live. Lord, may your presence be in, in both places and teach us exactly what you want us to know. Help us to obey what you've told us. And Lord, we just pray that you would continue to direct us as your people and shape us as your people so that we can please you in greater ways. Forgive us of our sins tonight. May we be a clean vessel before you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, turn to chapter 7 tonight, starting in verse 8. But first of all, we've got to have our quiz. I know you'd be disappointed if we didn't have our quiz so easy questions tonight. You'll probably get all of them. It's embarrassingly easy. So hopefully uh, you'll, you'll get them all. First question, number one, don't say them out loud. We'll go back and get the answers you can, in your mind or write them down if you want. Now, question number one, over the span of how long did Zechariah receive the eight visions from the Lord? How long did it take him to get all eight visions from the Lord? We are told that in Scripture. Question number two, what is the name of the country that invaded Judah and then took them captive? They were there for 40 years. They were captive. That's the nation that invaded and took the Israelites back to live as captives. Question number two, I'm telling you they're really easy tonight. Question three, what is the name of the country who overthrew the country who invaded Judah? They were in captivity, and then another country under King Cyrus uh, invaded and overthrew that country. So Israel became the property of the second country. Question number four in chapter six. Three Jewish men came to Jerusalem from Babylon with gold and silver. They're all mentioned by name. Three names. Give one of the names. From chapter 6, three men's names were given. I only have to name one of them. They, we are given their names in chapter 6. Jewish men who came to Jerusalem from Babylon with the gold and the silver. Question number 5, what unusual item was placed upon Joshua the high priest in chapter 6? What unusual item was placed upon Joshua the high priest in chapter 6 we talked about last Wednesday night. Question number 6. In chapter 7, two men came to ask the Israelite leaders a question. What issue did the question pertain to? They came to ask them a question about what? Two men came to the Israelite leaders the beginning of chapter 7. What did the question pertain to? And then number seven, where did the two men come from? We are told what town they came from to Jerusalem to ask the question about this issue. And it tells us what town they came from. What town, 10 miles away from Jerusalem, where did the two men come from? 
All right, I know it's full of 100s tonight. Question one, over the span of how long did Zechariah receive the eight visions from the Lord? One night, exactly right. It only took him one night to receive all eight visions. It took him longer than that to tell them all, but he received them all in one night. Question two, what is the name of the country that invaded Judah and took them captive? Babylon, absolutely, Babylon. Assyria first, that's exactly right. So if somebody put Assyria, you get half credit for that. There you go. So, but you're right, Assyria, but that was Israel. And the question was about Judah. Judah was the one that was the south was invaded, that would be Babylon. But you're right, the very first one invaded was Assyria. Question number three, what is the name of the country who overthrew the country, overthrew the Babylonians? Persia, absolutely, King Cyrus of Persia. And so the Israelites were then the property of the Persians. Question number four in chapter six, three Jewish men came to Jerusalem with, from Babylon with gold and silver. They're mentioned by name in the Bible. Give one of their names. The names were Helday, which meant robust, Tobijah, which meant God's uh, goodness, and Judea, which meant God knows. So you could put either Helday, Tobijah, or Judea. Question number five, what unusual item was placed upon Joshua the high priest in chapter six? Crown, a king's crown. It was unusual because high priests were never crowned as kings, and kings were never had the fun function of high priests. Always separate, which is a forerunner of Jesus to come who would blend both of those prophet and priest and king's roles together. Question number six. In chapter 7, two men came to ask the Israelite leaders a question. What issue did the question pertain to? Fasting, absolutely. Fasting, we'll talk about that tonight in just a moment. And then question number 7, where did the two men come from? Bethel. It tells us that the two men came from Bethel. Remember we talked about that. That was unusual. What were they doing in Bethel? Everybody went back to Jerusalem, we thought, in one theory uh, is that there was a small fraction of the Israelites that Nebuchadnezzar missed. And as he was going through the land, they were in Bethel and they remained all those 70 years there in Bethel. That's one theory and that Amos approached, uh, spoke to those groups. We don't know, but for whatever reason, the men came from Bethel, we're told, to Jerusalem to ask the question about fasting. All right, hopefully you made 100 tonight on the, on the uh, questions and we will then continue on with chapter 7. First of all, in your outline, let's look at recapping a call for justice and mercy. And the reason we're doing that is because we're looking at verses 8 through 14 of chapter 7 tonight, which deals with the question that was asked in verses 1 through 7. So I just don't want to pick up tonight. Maybe you weren't here last week or maybe you've forgotten. But in any case, I want to recap the first seven verses. So when we start in verses 8 through 14 makes more sense. As we begin chapter 7, two men came from Bethel, Sharezer and Regam Melech, from Bethel to ask the Israelite leaders a question. It had been two years since the time the visions had stopped until chapter 7 opened. So chapter 6 closes, two-year span, chapter 7 opens. So by now, by the time chapter 7 opens, the temple is being rebuilt and they're making pretty good headway on it. I mean, it's more than halfway finished. So they're, they're making pretty good headway. It's taking shape. So this group, two men representing a group from Bethel, went to the Israelite leaders and asked them, should we continue fasting now that the temple is well on the way? 
In other words, the temple is going to be our religious activity. We're going to offer sacrifices. We're going to go in there and worship. Everything we need to do for the Lord is going to be, take place in there. So should we continue fasting or not? That was the question. Now, just a little bit about the background, about fasting as to why they ask it. If you remember, we talked last week that just a little, a little bit about fasting in the Old Testament God only required his people fast one day a year. What day was that? Day of atonement. The one day that all the sins were atoned for. And he didn't tell them to fast. He just said, you are to afflict your soul. The day of atonement. That's from Leviticus 16, verses 29 to 34. What does it mean to afflict your soul? Well... The Jewish rabbis interpreted that to be fasting. You deprive yourself of water. You deprive yourself of food. You deprive yourself of things you enjoy. And so you deprive your soul. They, that's how you must afflict your soul. So it became they fasting. Even though Jesus, God didn't specifically tell them fasting. He just said afflict your soul. So they took it to be fasting. So one day a year they were to fast. Now, once they went to exile in Babylon... All the land's vacant, temple's gone, Jerusalem's gone. They're wondering, how do we stay faithful to God in a foreign country? Can't go to the temple, it's not there. Uh, can't go out and worship, there's no place to worship. Can't offer sacrifices, we have no altar, we have no high priest. How can we remain a distinct people of God, spiritual people, and still remain here with no place to go to church? So, they came up with more fasts. God didn't tell them to. They just decided on their own. We're going to add four more fasts every year. So now there's a total of five fasts a year that they do. They added one in the fourth month. It, that was the, whenever the, the morning for the capture of Jerusalem. They added a fast in the fifth month that commemorated the destruction of the temple. Because it happened in the fifth month. They added one in the seventh month, which commemorated the murder of Gedaliah, who was the final governor of Judah. And then they added one in the ninth month, because that's the month when Nebuchadnezzar started the siege of the city. So, you got Day of Atonement. They still would fast. They'd fast in the fourth month, the fifth month, the seventh month, and the ninth month. So, they did this 70 years, all 70 years they're in exile. But here's what happened. It might have been very legitimate to start out with. But the fast began to take on a life of their own. As religious activities can do. You and I can do the same thing. Sometimes we can start doing the religious activities. And the devotion to God behind it is really not as great as it once was. It's just that that's what we do. It's what we're supposed to do. So, that's the way fasting became. But they felt really good about themselves. Look how spiritual we are. God's only required one. We're doing five. But the problem was, all the time they were fasting, they were cheating their neighbors. And hating one another. And the materialism of Babylon caught up with them and they loved materialistic things. And when they got back to Israel, the materialism was still a problem. So, God asked him a question. What good are your fasts, five of them by the way, if all the time you're fasting, you're cheating one another? 
and you're hateful to one another and you hate one another and you are materialistic and you're not listening to my word what good are the fasts good question so in the first seven verses God's response to their question is let me ask you a question I'll ask answer your question with a question by the way did you notice that God did that all through scripture Jesus did that God did that every time not every time but many times when they asked God a question he'd respond with a question so their question should we keep fasting and his response was let me ask you a question did you fast all those months for 70 years for me or for you who did the fast benefit the most you make you feel good about yourself and not only that, a few days of fasting a year does not make up for the rest of the year when you hate your brother and you disobey my commands. So now that was his first response in verses 1 through 7 of the question. Now we get to chapter 7 verse 8 for his second response to their question. First of all, just to recap though, let's read the first seven verses and then we'll get to letter B on your outline, uh, God's response to the delegation. Chapter 7, verse 1, in the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day, ninth month, which is his lev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sharezer and Regamelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priest of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Word of the Lord Hosts came to me, say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous, with their cities around her in the south and the lowland were inhabited? So ask him a question. After those questions, now he responds again, let her be on your outline, God's re response, second response to the delegation that came to ask the question. He didn't really respond in questions. Now he gives them commands. Look at verse 8. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. So, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Let's stop there. Let's talk about that. Next, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. And through Zechariah, God rebuked his people for basically their neglect of being, of being disobedient. So, he described next what kind of obedience... He wanted, he expected, and he gave them four short, pithy statements of what he expected his people to do. Notice he never answered their question. He never said, yes, continue fasting. Or he never said, no, stop the fasts. He left it up to them. But if you do fast or you don't fast, here's what I expect you to do. Here are the kind of people I expect you to be. And so he listed 
four short statements of his expectations. Now, it's interesting that God's response came in the context of the question of fasting because the people found it easier to fast than to love each other. We're the same way, aren't we? It's a whole lot easier to come to church than to love your neighbor, isn't it? It's for me. I, I've, I go to church, what I do. I love coming to church. It's a good thing. I'm here all the time. I, I love coming to church. That's easy. Going to church is easy for me. But not getting angry when somebody is, treats you badly, that's harder. Or not responding to somebody the way I should respond or forgiving somebody, that's harder. It's, it's easier for me to tithe than it is to love my neighbor. Tithing's not hard, not for me. Hope it's not for you. It's, it's commanded of God. I started when I was 19 when I found out I was supposed to. Never miss tithe sin. It's not hard. But loving my neighbor is. And so the Israelites, they're, they're doing what's easy, but they felt good about it. Look at me. I come to church and I tithe and I fast. And all the while, you got something against somebody you hadn't forgiven them for. Or you treat people badly. Or you're rude or you're hateful. But we feel good about ourselves. And that's exactly what was happening here. So rather than commend them, oh, you guys are so good for fasting. God told him what he expected. Each of these four in verse 9 were ethical in nature. Did you notice that? Since they had a more difficult time with people than they did the fasts. The Israelites were not just to have this personal holiness due to the fast and not get along with each other during the rest of the year. And that's the heart of what God was saying. Dr. Lang put it like this. And this is a good way he put it. He said, being moral and treating people right is certainly not equal to being a godly person. Because lost people can do that. But a godly person must include being moral and treating people right. So just the fact you're moral... You stay out of jail, you do things right, you treat people right, doesn't mean you're saved. Because lost people can do that. But, on the other side, if you are saved, you cannot be a godly person if you don't treat people right. And you're not an ethical person. So I think Dr. Lang is exactly right on, and that's what Jesus, God is getting to here in verse 9. So let's look at these four. Number one, this is Lord, render true judgments. What did he mean by that? The word render there is the word execute or do something. True is the, is the word means firm. And judgments is a word that's very common throughout the Old Testament. Mishpat means justice. So execute firm justice in the land. God wanted his people to be people of justice. We hear a lot about justice today, social justice today. God wants us to be people of justice, treating people right and equally and fairly. That's number one, render true judgments. Second of all, show kindness and mercy to one another. Now, the word show kindness that's used there is the word hesed. I'll talk a little bit about that more in just a second. 
The word mercy was the worm, the, the word for a woman's womb. It was the word rakam, which described a womb, which they felt symbolized compassion. Compassion a mom would have for a, a, a baby in her, in her womb. So show compassion to people as a mom would have for a child and show it to one another. Now, what I find interesting about the word one another is it's the, the Hebrew word ah, ah, which is in reference to a half-brother. Half-brother. Or full brother. So in other words, if someone has the same father, they're brothers and sisters. We as believers have the same father. So we're brothers and sisters. So he's saying, show kindness and mercy to those other brothers and sisters that you have. In, in Christ, in, in a relationship with God. Now, here's the word when it says kindness in verse 9, show kindness. It's the word hesed, and let me just tell you a little bit about that word because it's a highly significant word in the Old Testament. Hesed is a Hebrew word that is in biblical Hebrew and in modern Hebrew today as well. You go to Israel, the concept of hesed, very important. The word's used 248 times in the Bible, many of them in the Psalms. And what's interesting about the word hesed is there is no English word that correlates to it. So if you're an interpreter and you're translating the Bible from Hebrew into English and you come across the word hesed, there's no English word that's an equivalent. What do you say? It literally has no English equivalent. It's untranslatable in our language. So, they translated kindness, but it's more than kindness. 149 times it's translated as mercy in the Bible. You ever see the phrase loving kindness in the Bible? That's hesed. They just sometimes combine loving and kindness together because we can't translate it. It's, it's such a deep, deep word, we have no word in the English for it. It's translated goodness sometimes, favor sometimes. Daniel Eleazar, Jewish rabbi, he, he says it's loving covenant obligation is how he translates it. It's a concept of the covenant relationship, of an obligation, of love, of kindness, of mercy, of goodness. And it goes deeper than every one of our English words that, that say those things. So hesed is a deep, deep concept. And it's how God treats you. He treats you more than just with kindness. He treats you more than just with goodness. He treats you more than just in a covenant relationship you have with him. He treats you more than just saying favor or mercy. It's all of those things, and it's a word how God treated his people. In fact, uh, Rabbi Simlai says that the Talmud says that the Torah, the law, begins with hesed and ends with hesed. It's such a strong word. Today, modern Judaism, they love the word hesed. In fact, they say hesed is boundless. You can never do hesed too much. Today, Jewish rabbis teach that hesed is one of the three pillars upon which the world was created. And today, any charitable organization in Israel are known as hesed. So if you go to Israel, you'll see the word hesed. 
It means it's a charitable organization like Red Cross, Salvation Army. They call any organization that helps people with compassion as a hesed. So, God used this rich word as to how he treats us, as to how we're to treat others. More than just with kindness, more than just with goodness, more than just with mercy, more than just loving, deeper than all that. And so he pulls out the trump card in verse 9 saying, you need to hesed others like I hesed you. So that was statement number two. Render true judgments, show hesed and mercy to one another. Verse 10, do not oppress the widow, fatherless, sojourner, or poor. Do not oppress these. The word means to exploit or to defraud. And he lists three groups primarily, well, actually four groups, but there were three groups all the way through the Old Testament that the Bible always says you take up for. The widows, the orphans, and the sojourner. Who's the sojourner? Those in your land that aren't citizens. So he says, the widow, because she has no husband to take care of her. Because, you know, in those days, it wasn't being chauvinistic. It was just that if a woman, she couldn't be a property owner, couldn't own a job, she needed a husband to live in those days. So she, she needed a husband so she could live. The fatherless, because they had no parents. And the sojourner, because they have no country to protect them. So, that's what he's saying. Look out for these three throughout Scripture. And then he says, and let none of you, number four, devise evil against one another in your hearts. Don't be thinking up evil things to do to one another. And sometimes we do. So, those are four statements that he said you need to start doing. Forget your fasts. You need to start rendering true judgments, showing kindness and mercy to one another, not oppressing those that can't help help themselves, and don't devise evil against one another in your hearts. Now go to verses 11 and 12. But they refused to pay attention, and they turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. Verse 12, they made their hearts diamond hard lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by His Spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. Let's talk about those two verses for a moment. God is telling His people, you're where you are because you didn't listen to me. I gave you commands. You wouldn't listen. I gave you you obedience, what it looks like. You wouldn't listen to me. And not only would you, did you stop listening, it got worse. You progressed. First, you just didn't listen. Then you turned a stubborn shoulder toward me when I tried to talk to you. Then he said, you stuck your fingers in your ears and wouldn't listen when I talked. And then your heart became as hard as a flint. I tried to speak nothing. So it began with a simple refusal to listen to God. Then they shrugged their shoulders. Then they stopped their ears. Then it ended with a heart as hard 
as flint. Folks, there is a progression to not listening to God. Did you know that? You begin maybe with just stopping listening to what he has to say to you through his word or through a message or Sunday school lesson. Then you get to where you kind of bow up against it. Then you get to the point where I just don't want to hear it. Then you get to the point where your heart's so hard, he can't speak to you. It's a progression. Whenever you find somebody who has a hard heart, it didn't happen overnight. It got that way through a progression. Some of you may be at steps to not along that progression. Maybe you've stopped listening to God's Word. Maybe you've got out of church. Maybe you stopped listening to sermons. Maybe you stopped reading the Bible. Maybe you stopped going to Sunday school. And then maybe you're at the point where I just, I, you bow up against what he says. I don't like that he says, I don't think that's right. I think, I, I think we've progressed beyond that. And you kind of bow up at it. Or you may be where you just stop your ears and don't want to listen anymore. Or maybe that your heart's completely hard and he tries to speak and nothing enters it. So by the time you get to that hard heart, by the way, it's the exact same word used to Pharaoh in Exodus. It says he hardened his heart. It, it literally means to make your ears heavy, heavy ears. That's what it literally means in Hebrew. Heavy ears so that they fall down and you don't listen. So whenever you meet people with hearts as hard as flint, you know that they did not become that way overnight. It was a gradual progression. And whenever he says, but they refuse to pay attention to me, the word refuse there was often used in other cultures of a girl refusing a marriage proposal. <laughs> marriage proposal's made, and she refuses. Now, the Hebrew culture, that wasn't quite, but other cultures around there was the exact same word they used. Pay attention meant to be attentive. And turning a stubborn shoulder, that was the image of an ox when you try to put a yoke on them. Just bowing up against it and not wanting that yoke upon him. Where the muscles were tense and fighting the yoke. It's the exact same picture in Hebrew. Stopping their ears is interesting. We used to do this as a kid. No, 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 I can't hear you. It's exactly the picture here. Putting their, it's childish, isn't it? Literally stopping up their ears with their fingers saying, I can't hear you. And that's the image. And then literally making their ears heavy and their hearts hard. What's interesting is it says whenever they, they made their hearts hard, the word made there is to set something in place. If you're, if you're building something and you want to put poles in concrete or a, something like that, um, a cornerstone maybe and in cement, uh, that's the picture. You set it in there, put it in place, let it dry where it's not moving. And he says they did their hearts that way. They put their hearts hard concrete so that every time my word came forth, they were dead set on not listening to it. Still people like that. Some people like that even in church. Dead set on not listening to what God's saying to them. But here's the word interesting. It says it's made their hearts diamond hard. You say, where do you get flint out of that? Because the word translated diamond hard in the ESV, literally in Hebrew is the word flint. Now, what is flint? You go to Israel and you're in the southern portion. Uh, around where Jesus was baptized, around, the jo uh, around Jericho, the area, and you're driving through there in the bus, and you see out across there, looks like black 
on the land, black dots all across the land there. That's Flint. Flint, it's still there today. Flint was found in limestone and chalk deposits all throughout the northern Sinai Peninsula in the Old Testament, but it's still there today. It's what's interesting about it. Flint is very brittle, but whenever you heat it and cool it, it becomes very hard, extremely hard. Um, and so the Israelites, would, they would heat it and cool it, and they would make instruments out of it. They would make knives out of it. Uh, in fact, they would circumcise with the flint stones, not the flint stones, but the flint stones. And they would circumcise with, uh, with, uh, with these knives. They would chisel tools out of it. They had, in fact, back in 2018, interesting article I was just reading earlier today online about it, they discovered central um, uh, Israel in, in 2018, these handmade axes made out of flint. They knew they had, you know, uh, chisels and knives and all that. They didn't know they had handheld axes until it was discovered in 2018 made out of flint. Uh, and so you could strike two pieces of flint together and create sparks. That's how hard it got. In its natural state, sometimes it gets kind of brittle, but the edges become really razor sharp and really hard whenever you heat it and cool it. So God used flint a few times as illustrations in the Bible. Isaiah 5.28, he talked about the horse's hooves would become hard as flint. Uh, Isaiah 50 verse 7, he says that their hearts would become hard as flint. Ezekiel 3.9, he said, I will make your foreheads as hard as flint because they were banging against the law and wouldn't observe it. And here he says, you have made your hearts diamond hard like flint because you have rejected my commands. So Flint's very interesting here and all, all the way through. Notice he says at the end of verse 12, lest they should hear the law, the Torah, and the words the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit. Now, let me say a quick word about this. I just find it interesting, not that there's anything real earth shattering here. I just find it interesting. The Holy Spirit producing the Bible, we know that from the New Testament. Right? Holy Spirit gives us, Holy Spirit comes in in fullness and acts, and Holy Spirit gives us the Bible. We're told that. But here we are for the first time in the Old Testament, where Zechariah says, was he said in verse 12, that the Lord of hosts sent his words and the law by his Spirit through the former prophets. So you have the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament as being the one that produces, that gives God's word to us. I just find that interesting that Zechariah was the first one to mention that. The mediator of God's word was the Holy Spirit. So he tells them here at the end of verse 12, In your hardened state, you did not want to hear what God's word says. You know, um, whenever you and I lose the desire to hear the word of God, it's sobering evidence that our heart's hard. I know in, in my past, whenever, before I went in ministry and I was running from the Lord, I didn't like, I didn't like listening to sermons. They brought too much conviction. So I just avoided them. Went to church when I had to. When my parents made me as a teenager. But I didn't go on my own. Didn't want to go. 
didn't really want to read the Bible, and it convicted me. And so whenever you reach the point where you don't like hearing God's Word, whether it's preached or taught or reading it, it's a pretty good sign your heart's starting to harden. Be careful. Because he says here, their heart became hard where they didn't want to hear my word. When you lose that desire to hear God's word, sobering evidence that your heart's starting to get hard. And then he says, therefore, into verse 12, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. The word that's used for anger there literally means to take a twig and snap it. So the anger, the, the splintering of a twig came from the Lord of hosts because they would not listen to him. And as I read that in verse 12 today, I was thinking, I wonder if God, same, same thing still happens today. Whenever you and I refuse to listen to him because we don't want to hear it, I wonder if he gets angry at that. He did then. I don't know. Does he get angry whenever we want to refuse to listen to what he says today? Kind of interesting. Therefore, the anger of the Lord came from the Lord of hosts. Let's look at verses 13 and 14. We'll close. As I call, this is very interesting. As I called and they would not hear. So they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. Let's stop there just for a moment. The word call there means to cry out. So I cried out to you. Stopped your ears, put a shoulder into it, didn't want to hear, heart got hard. And you wouldn't hear. So when you call out to me, I won't hear you. Wow. That's interesting, isn't it? Because I think we always think, no matter what God says to me, whether I listen or not, I can always ask, I can always pray and he'll hear me. Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe, maybe God doesn't hear every prayer. Because it's interesting how we always want the listening to be one way. We want God to listen to us when we pray. But we don't really want to listen to him when he speaks to us. So we want the listening to kind of be one way. So for God to actually tell his people, I called out to you and you wouldn't listen to me. So when you call out to me, I'm not going to listen to you. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? So this is another good reason to obey what God has told you to do. I want God to listen to me when I pray. Don't you? I want him to hear me. So, if I want my prayers answered, I have to listen when he cries out to me. And when he speaks to me. Do, do we really think that he would answer our prayers and listen when, he, when we call out, but we're unwilling to listen to him when he calls out? Why would he? So, tonight... Hopefully, you are an obedient person to everything he's told you to do, or as best you know how, but trying your best. Because when you cry out to him in your prayers and you want prayers answered, remember, if you're unwilling to listen, he said he would be unwilling to listen. 
And I'm not the one that said that. God said that, verse 13. This is 14, we'll close. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. That's just a description of Babylon coming in invasion, invading, and they were carried away to captivity. Thus the land they left was desolate so that no one went to and fro and the pleasant land was made desolate. The word desolate there means horror. And the word pleasant means desirable. So God is saying is, when you were in my land before Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon invaded for the very first time, the land was pleasant because you obeyed me. But you disobeyed, wouldn't listen anymore. Prophets spoke, you turned your shoulder, stopped your ears, heart got hard. And so therefore, as a result of that, Babylon came in and I made that land a horror. But I'm going to restore it again, but make sure now that you're back. You will listen to what I say to you carefully. So those two men went to ask a question about fasting. Boy, they got an earful, didn't they? Much more than fasting. They got a lesson on how to listen to God, why it's important to listen to God, and how we must obey ethically, morally, every way we can obey what God has told us to do and listen when he speaks to us. Well, starting chapter 8, it's a whole new section. It's something is different. It goes a t- totally different direction. So I wanted to stop there, and we'll pick up with chapter 8 uh, next Wednesday night. If you have any questions, comments, please feel free to see me afterwards or email me sometime this week. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word today. And Lord, a lot of sobering things in there. I pray that we will treat others the way that you want us to treat them and love them and hesed them the way you hesed us. Lord, I just pray that we will not refuse to listen to you, that we'll not bow up with our shoulders against what you've told us. And I pray that we'll not stop our ears, and I pray that our hearts will not get hard so that whenever we cry out to you, you will listen so that we listen to you. God, help us do that even this week. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. See you Sunday.